Today on the Matt Wall Show, online application forms now provide dozens of gender options, and sometimes man or woman doesn't even make the list. And speaking of made-up terms, a new poll shows that almost no Hispanic people use the term Latinx, and yet the left continues to push it. We'll talk about all that today. Plus, Bill de Blasio bans young children from public accommodations if they don't show their vaccine papers. The evil is so absurd and over the top at this point as to almost be cartoonish. And salacious new details emerge in the Jesse Smollett trial. Also, a company produces a suicide pod to help people kill themselves. And in our daily cancellation, we'll ask the question, why is everyone so ugly these days? All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Here's a gift you can give yourself for Christmas. How about um, aligning yourself with a company, supporting a company, that supports you rather than, as we all do, unfortunately, just in the fact that we uh, we live in this culture, inevitably you're going to be supporting a lot of companies, giving your money to a lot of companies that hate you. Well, when you get a chance to support a company like Charity Mobile, you ought to do it. Charity Mobile is the pro-life phone company. They partner with you to automatically support the pro-life, pro-family charity of your choice with 5% of your monthly plan price, and they've sent millions of dollars to charities so far. New activations and eligible accounts get a free cell phone with free activation and free shipping. When you mention offer code Walsh, Plus, speaking of Christmas, you get a Christmas gift with every phone with Charity Mobile while supplies last. Charity Mobile, they make it easy to switch if you're worried about the convenience of it. You can keep your existing phone number, and you may even be able to keep your existing phone. But if you want a new phone, they've got a variety of options um, from everything from, from the basic flip phones all the way up to the smartphones and the latest 5G phones. They've got all of that. No contracts, no termination fees, no risk with a 30-day guarantee. So switch to Charity Mobile and support the causes you care about. Call them at 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com and mention offer code Walsh. So a woman named Sasha was filling out some kind of online application form recently and shared one part of that experience on Twitter. At the section where it asks for your gender, a drop-down menu appears, which you can see with 19 options. Uh, notice the order of their appearance. Agender, androgynous, bigender, demigender, gender fluid, gender queer, pangender, trans man, trans woman, two-spirit, gender not listed, declined to answer, non-binary, and then cis male and cis female. Now, if you're wondering, for some reason, uh, demigender means somebody who is one gender, but not fully that gender. So perhaps a demigender is 82% man, and the other 18% is comprised of uh, you know, other ingredients. Human beings now like talk about themselves like whiskey connoisseurs might talk about the mash bill and a nice bottle of bourbon. Yeah, I'm 50% male, 20% female, uh, 20% unicorn, and uh, 10% rye. Pangender, by the way, is someone who doesn't connect with any particular gender. Uh, but isn't that the same as demigender and genderqueer and non-binary and gender fluid and agender? Aren't these all labels for the exact same thing, which at bottom is nonsensical in itself? Yes, of course. But in a culture where labels now take the place of personality, a person wants to accrue all of the labels they can. It's like the kind of stat padding that a football team might do in the fourth quarter when they keep throwing passes, even though they're up by 25 with two minutes left. They, you know, they want to collect the stats for their own sake, just as the person in the leftist LGBT cult collects labels for their own sake. But the striking thing about this array of options is not what makes the list, but what doesn't. Notice what's missing. The options for man and woman, not there. These categories have been erased. Instead, Sasha, as a biological female, who knows that she is a female and identifies as what she is, has to settle with the term cis female. 
But cis is an invented term made up by the LGBT left with the express purpose of making normal men and women seem like one mere variation among an infinite array of equal, if not superior, options. By calling normal women cis, you're placing them within the LGBT framework. You cannot say the word cis male or cis female in a non-critical way without affirming every other gender identity because cis exists in a universe alongside those others. Cis is meant to validate the other choices while marginalizing itself. The last point is, uh, is made, the marginalization point is made in a, in a not so subtle way by, by listing the cis options last, even though the list is alphabetical otherwise. So they went outside of the alphabetization system. There we go. In order to put cis at the bottom. Because every other, every other term there, it's all, it's all alphabetical. And then, but we're going to put cis at the bottom, even though it starts with C. Kind of a visual representation of the LGBT identity hierarchy. Marginalize normalcy. Make normal, make normal seem abnormal. That's the goal here. It's a goal that has already been accomplished, largely through the manipulation of language. As always, the manipulation is top-down. Elites come up with it, you know, with, with these terms. They kind of workshop it, and then they send it out into the community demanding that the plebes adopt it. Perfect example of this is the term Latinx, which I guess they want us to pronounce as Latin X. But it, it, both, it, no matter how you pronounce it, it makes no sense. But really, L-A-T-I-N-X would be Latinx, and so that's what I'm calling it. It's the totally incoherent gender-neutral term for Latino that the LGBT left concocted a few years ago. The Daily Wire has a report on how well it's been received in the Hispanic community. And uh, spoiler alert, it, it has not been received very well. They report, quote, On Monday morning, Politico reported that a new poll indicated that many Hispanic American voters are bothered by the term Latinx, possibly contributing to the exodus of Hispanic voters from the Democrat Party. Latinx has been introduced in recent years by academics as a way to describe Hispanic voters without using the feminine Latina or the masculine Latino. The national poll was taken between November 17th and November 21st and found that the effort to implement Latinx is turning off Hispanics, according to Politico. Only 2% of those polled referred to themselves as Latinx, while 68% called themselves Hispanic and 21% favored Latino or Latina to describe their ethnic background, according to the survey from Bendixson and Amandian International, a top Democratic firm specializing in Latino outreach. More problematic for Democrats, 40% said Latinx bothers or offends them to some degree, and 30% said they would be less likely to support a politician who, or organization that uses the term. This latest poll is nearly identical to a 2019 survey that found 98% of Hispanics preferred a term other than Latinx to describe their heritage. At the time, the progressive founder of Think Now, Mario Carasaco, uh, said that uh, based on the results, he would advise my colleagues across the various marketing, human resources, journalism, and communication disciplines to avo avoid using Latinx as a descriptor for all Latinos. Well, of course, normal Hispanic people don't use the term or like it. If Spanish is their primary or only language, then they really can't use the term as, it's, as it, it is unpronounceable in Spanish. That's one of the many problems with it. Spanish is a gendered language. Every noun has a gender. So the word chair in Spanish, silla, is feminine. The word for bench is masculine, el banco. And that's about the extent of the Spanish that I know. Three years of high school Spanish well spent. In any case, the point is that you, you cannot impose gender neutrality onto a fundamentally gendered language without destroying the language. The left, to borrow their phrase, is colonizing the Spanish language and turning it into something else entirely. 
So this goes beyond trying to bully Spanish-speaking people into using a new word. They're trying to bully them into a new language. The irony here is that if, for whatever reason, the gendered nature of the word Latino or Latina offends you, there's already another gender-inclusive and coherent and popular term that the people in this community use. Almost 70% of them prefer it. That is Hispanic. So if you want a gender-neutral term for Latino people, why not just call them Hispanic? Well, the answer is that Hispanic already exists. That's the problem. And it's existed for a long time. So when you say the word Hispanic, you bring to mind people who live south of our border. But the LGBT left doesn't want you to think first of Hispanic people when you talk about Hispanic people. They want you to think of themselves. Everything and everyone must be defined by reference to themselves and their ideology. Through Latinx, they have essentially inducted the entire population of Central and South America, all 600 million of them or so, into the LGBT leftist camp. Normalcy is pushed further to the fringes. Now, the good news, at least, is that normal people reject this gibberish. The bad news is that even though nobody likes it or wants it, still the term exists and is pushed and appears in official government documents and is used by major corporations. That shows the power of the leftist elites to uh, obtrude these changes into a society, onto a society against its will. Now, a few years from now, after they have uh, hectored and threatened and cajoled and manipulated at least a sizable minority into using the term, a new political poll will be conducted showing that, hey, now, would you look at that, 35% of Hispanics told a pollster that they prefer the term Latinx. And when that happens, the left will celebrate the news and they'll call it progress and evolution. They'll say, yeah, yeah, look at that, language changes on its own. But it will be neither progress nor evolution. Not a natural evolution, anyway. It will be rather the result of a sustained psychological and social campaign to change the way people speak about themselves and thus the way they see themselves. That, as always, is the ultimate goal. Now let's get to our five headlines. This holiday season, how about a gift that keeps on giving you joy and comfort every day, all year long? A gift that looks as good as it feels and a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive you'll be at work. I'm talking about giving yourself the gift of an X chair. This is for yourself. Don't get anyone else the X chair because, you know, you get this is this is for you. You deserve it. Um, and I absolutely love mine, I can tell you. It's by far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And honestly, it's also probably the coolest looking piece of furniture I own. Not only is X-Chair the world's greatest office chair, but with its patented LMX technology, it, it doubles as a massage chair and it can uh, cool or warm your back as well. Can your office chair do that? Probably not. So now is the perfect time to purchase an X-Chair. You can buy early and buy now. And here's X-Chair's -Chair, X holiday gift to you. Save $100 off your X-Chair just by purchasing at xchairwalsh.com now. That's xchairwalsh.com. Uh, the letter X, chair, W-A-L-S-H.com. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchairwalsh.com and save xchairwalsh.com. All right. So, um, by, by the way, I, I, you know, there, were, there were some people uh, complaining in the comment section. You can see that we're, we're all decorated for Christmas here, as we mentioned yesterday. Very, very festive. Um, I had uh, mentioned on the show that I wanted a, a, I wanted a six-foot mechanical Santa behind me on the show, waving. That was one of the things that I that I requested. 
And I just talked to our producer mechanic about it. She said that um, we, we couldn't get approved. It'd be about $700 for a mechanical Santa and that waves. And somehow that, that budget was not approved. So I'll have to go talk to the higher-ups about that one. But we'll see what else we can do. Um, the biggest news that we have to really start with, aside from the decorations in my studio, I think the biggest news is this. Okay, And I, and I, and I promise you I'm not making this up. It is Walrus Awareness Week. Okay, it's on the calendar. It's real. This is the week to raise awareness about walruses and about books, especially children's books that are walrus-themed. Okay, Like, say, my children's book, Johnny the Walrus. Um, we didn't plan to coincide the launch of, uh, of Johnny the Walrus with Walrus Awareness Week, but, uh, but it happened. You know, it, it was fated to happen. It's like written in the stars. The, the walrus uh, constellation, which might exist, aligned, and, and, and here we are. It's, it's pretty amazing how, how perfectly this has all worked. I'm a top LGBT author. It's Walrus Awareness Week. Why do we need walrus awareness? I mean, who isn't aware of walruses already? And if you're not aware, why do you need to be aware of them? What are we supposed to do with that awareness besides buy my book? I don't know. I can't answer that. This is just a week for people to go, uh, you know, for someone to say to you, hey, hey, did you know walruses exist? And then the other person says, yeah, I did know, but thanks for reminding me. And so it's great. That's what it's all about. In fact, here's a, we're going to play this for some reason. Um, Here's a, uh, I was, I was looking up reports on Walrus Awareness Week. And there are a lot of local news channels have been have been talking about this. Uh, I'm a little bit offended that uh, I, I watched about five different reports on Walrus Awareness Week. Not one of them mentioned my book, Johnny the Walrus, which is available at uh, johnnythewalrus.com. But uh, we'll watch. This is a this is a CBS affiliate um, talking a little bit about walruses, and uh, I figured let's just let's watch this. It is Walrus Awareness Week, and what better time to talk with our friends from SeaWorld about their involvement. They really are involved in a lot of efforts, but Walrus Conservation Consortium is one big one. This is pretty neat. Joining <laughs> us at their Walrus exhibit is Mitzi Sinnott, Senior Animal Care Special. Mitzi, thanks so much for being here, and who do you got there? <laughs> this handsome boy is Dozer. This Dozer. is our 28-year-old male, and you guys, he's almost 4,000 pounds. Oh, <laughs> man. Dozer. They like to eat. So, so how much do they eat in a day, and what do they usually like to consume? So right now, he's eating 125 pounds of fish a day. So he gets herring, he gets clams, wow. sardines, squid, all kinds of stuff. So in the wild, he would actually be able to go find 125 pounds of food a day? Wow. Pure body shaming. Body shaming the walrus. Oh, do they really eat that much? Yes, Gary, they eat that much. He's 4,000 pounds, made of pure lard. He lives in the damned Arctic. What do you want him to do? Want him to make himself a, like a, a nice Greek salad? What do you want? Outrageous. Um, but I guess this is why we need greater walrus awareness and acceptance in society. So we don't have this kind of body shaming. And also that you know to buy my book, johnnythewalrus.com. Okay, um, we'll move on. The uh, okay, we'll start here from um, from you know walruses, which are kind of weird looking. We'll go from there to New York, where the mutant Gumby Bill De Blasio has announced new COVID measures going further than anyone else has gone. So you know you notice the trend here as as this as this wears on and wears on. Um, people like Bill De Blasio, they, they're they're putting COVID measures in place that are stricter and stricter. Okay, so this is not getting more relaxed. And here's the latest from uh, de Blasio. 
We've got Omicron as a new factor. We've got the colder weather, which is going to really create additional challenges with the Delta variant. We've got holiday gatherings. We in New York City have decided to use a preemptive strike to really do something bold to stop the further growth of COVID and the dangers it's causing to all of us. So as of today, we're going to announce a first in the nation measure. Our health commissioner will announce a vaccine mandate for private sector employers across the board. All private sector employers in New York City will be covered by this vaccine mandate as of December 27th. We're gonna have some other measures as well to really focus on maximizing vaccination quickly so we can get ahead of Omicron and all the other challenges we're facing right now with COVID. Okay, so you see it puts up on the screen there on the, on the, the graphic. Vaccine proof for indoor dining, fitness, and entertainment required for children ages 5 to 11. The uh, New York Post has more info on that part of it. Children's ages 5 to 11, it reports, must show proof of one vaccination dose to eat out, see a show, go to a movie theater, visit a fitness facility, or attend indoor entertainment venues by December 14th. Kids over age 12 must have two doses by December 27th unless they receive the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Bill de Blasio first, first launched the key to NYC vaccine mandate for adults at all public indoor venues in August. But now the new mandate also applies to many school activities. Kids over five must now be vaccinated to attend high-risk extracurricular activities like band, sports, orchestra, and dance in schools. So pull them out of school, pull them out of uh, sports, pull them out of all those activities. Tell them they can't, they can't sit down at a restaurant. They can't go watch a movie. Children in, in many of these places, especially places like New York, were isolated for over a year, attending school through Zoom meetings. And, um, and now you're going to isolate them once again. We, we know that the suicide rate among kids, among adolescents especially, attempted suicides, all of that skyrocketed over the last year or two. Um. And this is what we're. This is what they're doing in New York. I mean, this is pure, unadulterated evil from Bill De Blasio. It's. It's. I mean, it's unthinkable, but we have to think about it because it's actually happening. But it's unthinkable that you would you would say to a five year old, "Show me your papers, or you're not allowed in this restaurant." All for a virus that poses almost no serious threat to kids at all. And that's why many parents are hesitant about getting the vaccine for their kids. You know why? Because, because we have two years of COVID um, under our belts, and there's a lot of data. And we can make an, an informed, data-driven decision and say, you know what? If my kids get COVID, it's, it's very, 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 very unlikely that they'll get seriously ill from it. And even less likely that, that they'll die from it. But then you look over at the vaccine and you say, uh, you know what? We just started giving this, this vaccine to kids. I, we, don't know that, we don't know much about it. Okay, so this is, a, this is a, in many ways, because it's new, it is therefore, by definition, an, an unknown entity for kids that, that's, uh, that young. It's a devil you know versus devil you don't kind of thing. 
It's it's a very reasonable calculation that parents make. And because many parents have made that reasonable calculation, uh, you're going to punish the children. This man is, uh, did I mention that he's evil? I mean, sometimes that, that aspect can, I, you know, can, can sometimes get lost in the fact that he's such a goofy, ridiculous, stupid person. But that doesn't make this any less evil. I mean, what we're doing to kids, how we're treating them in this, in this society is unconscionable. And I have to, and I have to remind you again that the reason that we're doing this you know, I'm sort of wasting my breath here talking about, well, COVID is not a serious threat to children, according to the data. It's not about the kids. That's not what it's about. This is all about the adults. It's, it's to make the adults feel comfortable. Well, it's two things. It's power for the people in charge. So this is a power trip. This is a power move. Um, and it's also to make adults feel comfortable. Now, he mentioned the Omicron as uh, as one of the the reasons why they have to put all these measures in place because this Omicron variant's out there and uh, it's really terrible and and so we got to put all this stuff in place because of the Omicron. Well, let's go to the Guardian and uh, read. They've got a report. Here's what they say about uh, Omicron. The Omicron variant has been detected in at least 38 countries, but no deaths have yet been reported, according to the World Health Organization amid warnings that it could damage the global economic recovery. The U.S. and Australia became the latest countries to confirm locally transmitted cases of the variant as Omnicorn infections push South Africa's total cases past 3 million. The WHO uh, has warned it could take weeks to determine how infectious the variant is, whether it causes more severe illness, and how effective treatments and vaccines are against it. The WHO emergency director, Michael Ryan, said we're going to get the answers that everybody out there needs. But according to the data we have right now, it is... Um, it is not at all lethal, according to the data. Now, there's a doctor on Twitter, um, Dr. Avi Daskalou, and uh, he's got some a, a chart here that he put up. And he tweeted out, uh, Omnicorn and South Africa are the battle of midway for COVID-19 outcomes. He says, and some bullet points here, a 7x increase in new cases without increase in mortality, no protection for previous natural immunity, no data for vaccine protection. So what do we get from that? Um, it's, it's, at least in South Africa, he says, it's created a, an enormous surge in cases. 7x increase. Seven times increase. But no increase in mortality. And if that data holds up, that means that this thing is... Ex- this is an extremely mild strain, according to the data. So I ask again the question that I have been asking, which is... Um, if it's true that Omnicorn is an extremely mild variant of COVID and that it's in 38 countries across the world and nobody's died of it so far, and the, the scientist who discovered it says that, uh, you know, basically it's, it's just cold symptoms for a few days for most people. Very mild, she said. Well, if that's the case, why are we trying to contain it? You know, if we're in... If, if we were interested in getting past this, why would you take the one, the most mild strain of COVID and do everything you can to shut everything down, lock people away, do what you can to isolate it and get rid of that strain? The, the safest, most mild strain. Why would you do that? 
That's a question. Largely a rhetorical one, but something to think about. Um, what else we got? Uh, still on the on on COVID. I got to play this for you. Jimmy Fallon and Ariana Grande and uh, Migan the Stallion. They did a. They they have a Christmas song out now called "Masked Christmas." All about wearing masks and uh, getting your booster before before you go to Christmas with your family. And I'm now going to subject you to exactly 60 seconds of this. Here it is. What's up, y'all? It's Megan Thee Stallion, Ariana Grande, and Jimmy Fallon. Y'all know what time it is. It's time to get those boosters. Just cut out of this. All right. Okay. But I, we didn't get, I was trying to do whole, the whole 60 seconds because that's your punishment. And uh, I couldn't even get through the entire thing. You know, it, on the left, they used to pretend to be big uh, critics of big pharma. Any, any big corporation, right? Any big billion dollar industry, big critics of that. And now we have one after another. The, this, this is basically an ode to pharmaceutical companies. It used to be a Christmas song, you know, that would be an ode to, uh, to Jesus Christ who, who came here to save us from our sins. That, that used to be what, what you would sing about on Christmas. And now, the, the new Christ is the pharmaceutical industry. Well, because sin doesn't exist. Everything's been medicalized. And so the pharmaceutical industry, they are now the Messiah, the saviors. And so now we're going to get uh, Christmas songs that are odes to the pharmaceutical companies. Disturbing, to say the least. Speaking of disturbing, the Jussie Smollett trial is ongoing. I say it's disturbing. It's actually not. I, I think the disturbing thing is, is that it, it, arguably it's a grave human rights violation that this trial is not being live streamed. I mean, this is some of the best comedy of the century happening behind closed doors out of view and we're not allowed to see it. This is like, I don't know, it's like if you go to St. Peter's Basilica and someone throws a tarp over the Pieta or something. This, 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 this thing of beauty out of view. We can't see it. Uh, but we do have the reports, which only gives us a, a small taste of what we're missing. And this is from Vice. It says, Jesse Smollett finally took the stand in his bizarre trial Monday and testified that he once masturbated with one of the men he's accused of hiring to attack him for attention. Smollett said it all went down during a, a visit to, unfortunate phrasing there, it all went down during a visit to a bathhouse with um, Abimbola, who's the, one of the brothers, uh, Smollett is accused of, of paying this guy to beat him up and yell racist slurs and pour bleach on him in uh, January of 2019. Smollett recalled in the courtroom, we went alone, we got a private room, we made out a little bit, and this time we masturbated together. He's, he's saying all this on the stand. Smollett also testified that after he met the brothers at a club, uh, they made out and did drugs during a different bathhouse interaction. And so they're making out and having sex and doing drugs all over the, all over the city. The ex-Empire star's testimony built on the defense's line of questioning last week 
when one attorney for Smollett dramatically asked uh, one of the brothers, a major witness for the prosecution, when he'd started dating Smollett. And the brother said he never did. And then we continue along, and um, Smollett says that he, uh, he was asked about the fact that his car was seen driving slowly past the day before, driving slowly past the, the scene of the, of the hoax. And we know that that's because they were scouting out spots to perpetrate this hoax, this con, this scam. But he says, it was no, we were just driving along and smoking a blunt. That's his defense in court, is that they were driving and smoking weed. Um, he also talked about, uh, he was asked, uh, why, why didn't you call police right away? It took him a little while to call the police. Like, why wouldn't you, you're at the scene of this uh, horrible hate crime. You've been attacked by, by these Nazis who poured bleach in you, put a, put a, a noose around your neck. Why wouldn't you immediately pull out your phone and call the cops right then at the scene of the crime? Instead, he went home and he waited a little bit and then he called them. And he still had the noose around his neck. So he, he kept it on. It's kind of like a fashion statement for a couple of hours. And he was asked about that. And he said uh, his answer was that he's a black man in America. So he's afraid of the police. So a couple of things. First of all, especially when we add this detail of him, of you know the masturbation detail, I'd be, I'm really interested to hear Jeffrey Tubin's legal analysis of all of this. Pro- probably CNN has, has uh, provided that. So I'd have to go check. Um, but from what I can tell, Jesse Smollett's whole defense is to just throw out all of his victim cards. Because you might, you might ask yourself, how is any of this relevant to your defense? So you, you made out with a man and engaged in these various sexual acts. Uh, how, does that, how does that help you? I mean, it, it might not hurt you, legally speaking, but how does it help? Why are you talking about that as part of your defense? And the answer is, uh, is it's a victim card. So he's throwing them all out. And for, the, for his lawyers, you, know, you have to see where they're coming from a little bit. This is all they have. Because the prosecution has them dead to rights. It's, it, was, it, was, it was obvious from the beginning that this never happened. But you've got the people who he staged the hoax with saying, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And here's the money he gave me as proof. He wrote me a check. Jesse Smollett. Jesse Smollett perpetrated a race hoax and wrote a check to the people and wrote on the memo line, race hoax. He might not have done that, but he did write them a check. So they've got them. All the evidence is there. And um, what, what do they really have? I mean, why is this? Why are they even going to trial? Why are they putting Jesse Smollett on the, on the stand to begin with? The answer is uh, it's to throw out the victim cards and hope that there's enough leftists on, and given that this is Chicago, there probably is. It might actually work. I'm going to tell you right now, I would not be surprised if Jesse Smollett is acquitted. In Chicago, this defense strategy, I wouldn't be surprised if it works. He's throwing out all the cards. He's saying, look, I'm gay. Uh, I'm a black man. Look, you see? I'm a marijuana user. We'll throw that in too. I don't know if that's a victim group now, but let's, let's give that a shot. Will it work? As I said, I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Okay, uh, what else we got here? Let me go up to this, see if I can find it. Okay, uh, from the Daily Wire, it says, Australian doctor Philip Nitschke has announced that 3D printing devices that are being coined euthanasia pods 
a coffin-like device that makes assisted suicide accessible for nearly anybody and without medical intervention, will soon be available in Switzerland. Nitschke has said his purpose for making the devices is so that anybody can commit suicide with little medical assistance. Insider reported Monday morning that Swiss outlets that uh, Swiss outlet Swiss Info announced that Sarco machines, 3D printed capsules designed for use in assisted suicide, have passed a legal review and can now operate in Switzerland. Prototyped in the Netherlands by Dr. Philip Nischke, the coffin-like Sarco cap- capsule should be ready for operation in Switzerland in 2022. Uh, and then we get into details about how this capsule actually works, and here they are. It's a 3D printed capsule activated from the inside by the person intending to die. So they get into their own coffin and um, they make themselves comfortable. It says the machine can be towed anywhere for for the death. It can be in an idyllic uh, outdoor setting or in the premises of an assisted suicide organization, for example. Uh, Quote, the person will get into the capsule, capsule and lie down. It's very comfortable. They will be asked a number of questions. And when they have answered, they may press the button inside the capsule, activating the mechanism in their own time. The capsule is sitting on a piece of equipment that will flood the interior with nitrogen, rapidly reducing the oxygen level to 1% from 21% in about 30 seconds. The person will feel a little disoriented and may feel slightly euphoric before they lose consciousness. Death takes place through hypoxia and uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide deprivation, respectively. There is no panic, no choking feeling, he claims. Um, And so these will be operational soon, and you can buy your very own death pod, your very own death chamber. Take it outside, you know, go to the, go to the, maybe to a mountainside, a nice view, and kill yourself. A, a couple of points here. You know, w- what's wrong with legal assisted suicide? Many, many things. We've talked about it before. We can't go in, I'm not going to go into a whole exhaustive list. Um, here, here's one thing, though. The, the doctor-assisted suicide, a big problem with it, is that now we are treating death as a medical option. And we're putting, we're putting doctors in the position of being death merchants. Now, doctors, that's, that is an inversion of, of medicine. Doctors traditionally taking the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. They're supposed to treat and heal. That's all a doctor is supposed to do. And when doctors get into the business of doling out death, then you have inverted the medical profession. And you might point out that doctors already do that through abortion, and you're right. And we see the corruption that that has created across the medical field, not just among abortionists. And this only makes it worse. This is another step in that direction where death becomes medicine. I mean, death cannot be medicine because medicine is about treating human beings. Um, death is the is the annihilate is annihilation. It's the annihilation of a human being. You cannot treat something through its own annihilation. Okay, you can't you can't fix a building by demolishing it. You might demolish a building and build a new one in its place, but you're not you can't you can't claim that you're fixing the building. And buildings are just buildings; they're inanimate objects. Is that how we want to treat human beings? We want to treat them in, by saying, well. You, you're, you're past your, your use at this point. Now bring out the wrecking ball and get rid of this one. We'll get a new model. Um, now, this is not doctor-assisted suicide. This is a product you can buy. And so instead, in this case, instead of doctors being the death merchants, instead of, instead of death being medicine, now death is a consumer product. 
It's something that you can buy. Now, you can have corporations in the business of dispensing death. Is that any better than death as medicine? Uh, no, I mean, arguably it's worse. At least it's equal. So you have death as medicine, death as a consumer product. Here's another question for you. If you are in the market, shall we say, for death, uh, if you're looking to commit suicide, when I, I want to be delicate about this because, of course, I'm not, I'm not recommending this path. I don't think anyone should commit suicide. And I think, I think when someone is suicidal, the, the, the appropriate thing is to counsel them away from that. Obviously, or it should be obvious. But it is an interesting question about, you know, if somebody wants to commit suicide, why wouldn't they shoot themselves in the head, let's say? That, that one would think is probably the quickest and painless way to go out, most painless way to go out. Um, is strapping yourself into a death pod, is, is there less pain involved? I don't know. I'm not going to find out. You would think something like that is a pretty quick, efficient way of doing it. Um, so why not that? I mean, if you're, if you're in, the, if you're in the, uh, the euthanasia industry and you're, you're a proponent of, uh, of, of, of what they call assisted dying, if you're a proponent of suicide, why would you just recommend that to people? Well, one is that you can't profit off of that, okay? Uh, because the death pills cost money, the death pods cost money, and people are profiting. So one is that's why you don't recommend it. The other is that, you know, shooting yourself in the head is brutal and violent. It's very clear what's happening. It is death. It's bloody. It's gross. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's all of those things. It's death. That's what it is, and that's what death is. Um. But by taking the suicidal person and putting them in a pod or laying them down gently on a bed and giving them a nice pill, you know, now these are all kind of visual euphemisms for, for, for suicide. It's a way of sanitizing everything, of hiding from what you're actually doing, acting like it's something other than death, something other than annihilation. You know, we could, we, it, it allows us to talk about the suicidal person and not even call them suicidal, which is what they are. It allows us to talk about suicide without calling it suicide. We can use other, other terms for it. So it's all about not being, it's dishonest. That's one of the other problems with euthanasia. It's dishonest. We're not being honest about what's happening here, about what these people are choosing to do to themselves. Um, all right. One other thing. This is from Fox. A new exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution features an interactive display that incorporates the first genderless voice assistant. Just the news reported, the voice assistant known as Q is located at the Futures exhibit, and the Smithsonian's website declares it, uh, describes it as a voice that was synthesized by combining recordings of people who identify variously as male, female, transgender, or non-binary. Um, the Futures exhibit, located in Washington, D.C., at the Smithsonian Art and Industries Building, at its grand opening on November 20th, and now you can have you can uh, be guided through this exhibit with a genderless voice assistant. And this is a big, big development. And uh, we have an example of what the genderless voice sounds like. And here it is. Hi, I'm Q, the world's first genderless voice assistant. Think of me like Siri or Alexa, 
but neither male nor female. I'm created for a future where we are no longer defined by gender, but rather how we define ourselves. My voice was recorded by people who neither identify as male nor female, and then altered to sound gender neutral, putting my voice between 145 and 175 hertz, a range defined by audio researchers. Okay, so wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. The voice was recorded by people who identify as neither sex. Then you had to change the voice. You had to manipulate it artificially to make it sound like it's someone of neither sex. Even though it still sounds basically like a woman. I mean, it sounds like a woman with strep throat or something. But what does that tell us? So you want a genderless voice, and supposedly there are genderless people out there. So why not just have one of them come come in, uh, and record the voice? Well, in fact, that's exactly what they did. But then they had to manipulate it through through the computer to make it sound genderless. Why is that? Because our voices are naturally gendered, quote unquote. Because apparently, even someone who identifies as genderless, even though they might get an option now in the drop-down menu when they're applying for a job, um, they still have a gender, and it comes through in every part of them, through through you know, every every part of their being. It has has a gender, or rather, I should say, has a sex, including their voice, which is why you have to manipulate it to get that result, which is still not very convincing. Okay, let's get now to the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Say, did you know that garages are the most frequently accessed entry to the home? You probably didn't, but now you do. Often overlooked, the garage is where the people most important to you come and go, and it houses many of your most prized possessions, including your cars, tools, and bikes, so it's just common sense to know what's going on inside your garage. Introducing the MyQ Smart Camera by Chamberlain, the only smart camera optimized for the garage, brought to you by the leaders in garage door opener technology. With features like live video streaming, recorded events, motion detection, and two-way communication right from your phone, you can make sure that your garage is secure 24-7. Pair it with the MyQ Smart Garage Control, and you'll never have to worry if you left the garage door open. You can check it, see it, and close it all from the MyQ app from anywhere. And that means if you're like me and you've got the uh, the OCD problem where you know you check the doors are locked 17 times, you check that the garage door is closed 17 times, but then on your way to work, you still think, did I close the garage? Well, now you've got the app and uh, you can check it there and uh, check that 17 times and then close it. So what are you waiting for? Give the gift of a MyQ Smart Garage camera to tech lovers this season. If you act now, you can save 46%, a very specific number, for a limited time by entering Walsh at checkout on myq.com slash Walsh. That's Walsh at checkout on myq.com slash Walsh to save 46%. Keep an eye on what's happening in and around your home's busiest entryway with MyQ Smart Garage camera. It's the only smart camera optimized for the garage. It's so sad. This is from King Edward says, it's so sad that in this time, a renowned LGBTQ activist can't become a beloved and successful children's author without facing discrimination. We truly live in a society. Uh, well, I appreciate that. And, and, and uh, you know, that's, that is a burden that, uh, that I carry as the nation's leading LGBT author, leading children's author, leading LGBT voice. Um, I carry that burden. And uh, it's made a little bit easier by the fact that, um, you know, I have a best-selling book, Johnny the Walrus, at johnnythewalrus.com. And, uh, oh, by the way, we, we are also, speaking of Johnny the Walrus, we are also on Target now, somehow. Target is carrying the book, not, not physically at their stores, I don't think. I mean, that would be great. But you can go to target.com and buy the book. So start to count down on that one. 
I think um, Abigail Stryer's book was banned. Her Irreversible Damage, her book about uh, the, the transing of, of our daughters. That book was banned by Target. It was originally carried by Target, and then they banned it after two people complained. So how many complaints will it take for Johnny the Walrus to get banned by Target? We'll find out. All right. Why are they carrying it in the first place? Well, because it was written by an LGBT author, probably. Let's see. Um, Valve says, Matt, the desk hole, talking about the uh, one, of, one of Kamala Harris's underlings who took that really disturbing photo yesterday trying to prove that they are really happy to, to work for Kamala Harris, but only proving the opposite. I remarked on the fact that there was a, a very suspicious-looking hole um, on the bottom of the desk, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was there for. And you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't speculate about why it was there. I didn't, I didn't, I, I don't think I implied anything. I just said, why is there a hole there? You might be able to think of some reasons why Kamala Harris, of all people, would have that hole in the desk. But I don't mean really anything by that. I just want to be clear. Anyway, Valve says Matt, the desk hole is most likely. Uh, for computer cords or other cords. A vast majority of desks made now have them. All right. Well, you have your theories. I have mine. I haven't said what those theories are. I'm not going to. Christian says, um, I love how honest Matt is about his hatred of the advertising. That's not true. I love advertising my own stuff, like Johnny the Walrus at johnnythewalrus.com or my uh, swag shack, which you can go to dailywire.com slash shop and uh, buy all my stuff there. Um, Fabio says, this is the first time I, I waited to listen to an LGBT plus author and I listened to the whole show. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. For, it, it truly, it, it's, you're showing that you are open-minded and you're very tolerant of, of me. Um, and I, I appreciate that. I mean, you have no idea. You, you never thought that by listening to this show, the Matt Wall show of all shows, that you would earn woke points. But now you do. You are racking them up. All the more reason to listen and share it with all your friends. Uh, Eric says, you're being criticized on social media by some conservatives who say that your book isn't good art slash is just a gimmick. I know you talked about it a little bit with Clavin, but I'd be interested to hear you expand. Um, yeah, that's right. There, there have been a few conservatives, some of them, at least one of them anyway, a children's author. And I have seen this. And they've been complaining like all, all since last week that Johnny the Walrus is not artistically acceptable. That it isn't good. You know, it should be better. It's not real art, blah, blah, blah. So a few responses to that. I have noticed that. A few responses. Um, it's a parody kids book printed on cardboard about, a, about a, a trans walrus. So were you expecting Shakespeare? Lighten up, for God's sake. Second, we have dominated the Amazon charts. We've been named the top LGBT book. We've dominated the children's book market. And uh, none of this is by accident. It's also, because, it's also not because we paid for a really expensive marketing campaign. We didn't even tell anybody this book was coming out until we released it. There was no, there was, you know, usually to get to the top of the charts, you have all the, you have all the pre-orders before you, you know, before the book is released. And uh, we didn't do that. We just released it last Monday. And we're doing all of this on platforms that hate us and hate our message and hate this book. So what do we call that? That's called a win. Okay, this is what a win looks like. I know some conservatives don't, they don't really know what that looks like. They aren't used to it. Maybe they don't even really like winning, but that's what this is about. Dominating with a, a book for preschoolers that makes a mockery of gender ideology, um, that's a big one. So here's my point. 
why not enjoy it? Why not cheer it on? You know, instead of looking for reasons to criticize, why not say, well, this is a, this is great. Because when a similar thing happens on the left, I can tell you, they don't do this. They don't start criticizing each other. Well, yeah, you know, it's a win, but I, I don't really like the way you did it. It should have been done this other way. This way, this way makes me feel weird. It makes my tummy hurt. They don't do that. They say, hell yeah, we won. I mean, some people on the right, I swear, are, are just are losers and they enjoy it. They're addicted to it. And the third point is there's a lot of envy on the right as well. Um, I, I think that's that's one of our problems. We don't work together as a unit, as a team very well. I mean, I'm talking about across the entire spectrum on the right, generally speaking. And uh, one of the reasons that we don't is because people get very envious. And uh, if you have some success with something, other people on the right will, will be sad and they'll be jealous that it wasn't them. And then they'll come after you. So I've experienced this. I've also seen it many times. And it's bad for the movement. It's also bad business, by the way. It's bad strategy. Because now you've burned a bridge and I'm not going to help you in the future when I might have otherwise. I don't hold grudges, but it's just a simple common sense. I'm not going to go out of my way to help someone who's publicly attacking me, right? That's, nobody does that. So that's what that's all about. And uh, it's, it's pretty sad. And although it's a kind of a cliche to say it now, this, this is why we lose so often. It's never been more important that Americans get their news from objective voices who value the truth. That's why we created our newest podcast, Morning Wire, which has been topping the Apple and Spotify charts since its release. And we're continuing our commitment to bringing you the news without a hidden agenda. It's the only daily podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to bring you the news that you need to know, we need your help to keep the facts trending towards number one. So subscribe and start listening now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. And also... Did I mention that I have this book called Johnny the Walrus that just came out? You can go to johnnythewalrus.com. Uh, and if you want to know what all the fuss is about, uh, top LGBT book, top children's book, one of the top books in the country, uh, literary sensation. Um, you know, I, what, I, what I'm being told, what people are saying is that they think it's, it is potentially one of the most influential, um, one of the most poetic and beautiful works of literature ever written. Um, I, I think people might be saying that. I haven't heard anyone say that, but I'm imagining they have. Anyway, you can see it for yourself. Go to johnnythewalrus.com and uh, pre-order your copy today. Let's get to our daily cancellation. Today, I'm canceling ugly people. Um, now, stick with me. I'm not attacking those of us who are aesthetically deficient through no fault or choice of our own. We're safe. What I'm canceling instead is intentional ugliness. And not just as it applies to human beings personally, but also to the works of human beings, our art, our, our, our architecture, our music. There's ugliness everywhere. The world has become a very ugly place. Now, it retains its natural beauty. You can still go to San Francisco, and if you step over the human feces and the meth addicts laying all over the sidewalk, and if you can wade through the mob of hoodlums looting the Gucci outlet, you can look out at the ocean, and it's just as beautiful as it always has been. There's beauty in the world wherever we've allowed it to remain. But those places are fewer and farther between as there's been a campaign to uglify everything, including ourselves. As for the uglification of people, TikTok provides an extensive catalog of such cases. Here's one highlighted by libs of TikTok. Uh, in the video, one female user shows pictures of herself from some years ago when she was a normal, decent-looking young woman. But, uh, but that has changed. Let's watch this.
Okay, well, if you couldn't see there because you're listening to the audio podcast, she chopped her hair off, she put on weight, and she stuck piercings all over her face. Her feminine appearance is gone in favor of this androgynous, mutilated look. I feel comfortable commenting on the transformation because she's apparently quite proud of it, proud enough to advertise it on social media. She is certainly uglier now, much uglier, and that's how she intends it. Many such cases. You find this trend even among pop stars who used to be criticized for being unreasonably beautiful. More and more, they've freed themselves from the shackles of physical beauty and embraced something else entirely. I saw an interview with Demi Lovato recently where she was talking about getting in touch with aliens through meditation. And somehow that wasn't the weirdest part of the interview. The weirdest part was her appearance. She was sporting a mullet and a baggy button down that looked like something that she grabbed out of her dad's hamper. Again, this is, this is part of a larger trend. Even the female celebrities who remain beautiful don't want you to notice it. Supermodel Emily Radichkowski was uh, has just released a book of essays. Though you'd probably want to read an essay by a supermodel about as much as you want to see me posing for modeling shots. Where she complains about uh, the, as the New York Times puts it, the oppression of the male gaze. She has built a career on being attractive in front of the camera. She's made millions off of the male gaze, and yet she hates it. It oppresses her. She wishes she could climb into a cave and model for no one and still get paid millions. But there isn't much of a market for cave modeling, so she sticks with the regular kind and whines about it. The attack on beauty also includes an attack on those who notice or appreciate beauty. Yet Radishkowski's complaints aren't as absurd as the rise of plus-sized modeling, where morbidly obese women don skimpy clothing to show off their excess baggage. We're not meant to appreciate their beauty. I mean, a morbid obesity is not beautiful since it's self-destructive and deadly. So much as we're supposed to admire the physical ugliness on principle. A few years ago, Calvin Klein unveiled massive billboards in, 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 in Times Square with fat people posing in their underwear. This is not beauty, but a kind of anti-beauty. Now, as I said, this extends far beyond the physical appearance of human beings. When it comes to pop stars, as they grow increasingly uglier and more weird and brutal in appearance, so does their music. Think about, think about this. How often do you, do you hear a pop song, even one you like, and think, wow, this is beautiful? Now, you might like a song because it's catchy or it sounds cool or whatever, but not usually because it's beautiful. There was a time, most of human history, in fact, when the statement, I like this music, was synonymous with the statement, this music is beautiful. The idea of liking music for any other reason than beauty would have seemed absurd. It still is, actually. Most music today, even if it's catchy, is also nonetheless obnoxious and vulgar and stupid and unpleasant. The same can be said about many of the cars we drive while we listen to the music and the buildings that we're driving to. Almost all buildings are ugly nowadays. We've gotten so used to it, we don't even notice it. But take note of it next time you're driving anywhere. I mean, the, the, the buildings are hideous, almost all of them. It only becomes noticeable when the ugliness is directly supplanting something beautiful that came before it. The Notre Dame Cathedral in, in Paris burned, and uh, now they're going to replace it with a contemporary monstrosity replete with obnoxious light displays and modern art and other forms of gaudiness. Speaking of art, modern art is defined by its ugliness. It is, like the TikTok user, ugly on purpose to make a point of some kind. But what is the point? I mean, why is everything and everybody so ugly? Why is the modern aesthetic so harsh and ghastly and strange? I think there are a few things happening here. Let's talk about two of them. One, modern society revolts against standards. We celebrate ambiguity because we imagine that there's freedom to be found in that vague sort of fog. We, we seek to escape expectation. A woman rejects the standards of femininity with its coherence and its clear lines 
and calls herself non-binary, but a beautiful woman, by definition, is one who best exemplifies those feminine traits. A woman is most beautiful when she most looks like a woman. That's one of the reasons why morbid obesity is not beautiful on a woman or on anybody. It's not beautiful on a woman because it, 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 not only is it, is it deadly and lethal and unhealthy and self-destructive, but it also, it also detracts from, I mean, literally covers up the feminine traits that make a woman beautiful. Just as the modern artist seeks to escape standards and expectations by painting, painting random splotches on a page and calling it a tree or whatever, but a beautiful painting of a tree is one that most captures the essence of a tree. The splotches are nothing in particular, so they can't be beautiful. Two, modern society is preoccupied by convenience and utility. We don't strive for transcendence. We don't recognize that anything like transcendence can exist. We reject it as a category. And so we build giant, gray, depressing, nondescript buildings, and we fill our cities with them. Our ancestors built palaces and cathedrals. I mean, they, they were literally reaching up towards the sky, towards something greater. That's why they built those buildings. We build really big shoeboxes. We live in the shoeboxes. We work in them. We go to church in them. The designs are practical and cheap. They're useful, but they're not beautiful. Beauty reaches for something beyond. Beauty cares about truth. Our culture just doesn't just fail to seek truth. It hates it. And it produces art and music and architecture and people who reflect that preference. So everything is ugly. And ugly on purpose. Not on accident, like me. And that is why purposeful ugliness today is finally canceled. And we'll leave it there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our new show, Morning Wire. On today's episode, New York City imposes sweeping new vaccine mandates, Russia prepares a military invasion of Ukraine, and Alec Baldwin gives a controversial interview about the fatal on-set shooting. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire. Morning Wire.